Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to be at. And Genesis chapter 1 is where we see how God has created humanity in his image. And so what I want to do is I want to teach a little bit about this. Now here's the reality. I have preached sermons on the, what it means to be made in the image of God that lasted an hour long. And I know that is just unbelievable. And how, how can you even imagine such a thing? But I had three sermons back to back to back that are about this thing. I don't have three hours to teach and preach. I have 40, 36 minutes now. And what that means is there is a lot to be said and a lot that can be said. And unfortunately, I can't say it. I just don't have enough time. And so because of my clock and the fact I have an email address, I have to (laughs) continue on. But this is also Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. We set aside Monday to just honor the legacy of a man who fought for the sanctity of human life. And one of the things I do every single Martin Luther King Jr. weekend is I read a letter from a Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King Jr. And one of my favorite quotes in that letter is this. In a real sense, he writes, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And I love how he says that. You may not be the recipient of injustice. You may not be the one who's being oppressed. And so it may not affect you directly. But let us not fool ourselves. It does in fact affect us indirectly. Human life and human dignity matters. And it matters because it matters to God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through chapter 2, verse 3. This is the sixth day in which God created humanity. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So Father, this is your word. This is how you've chosen to reveal yourself through this word. And so I pray that our reading of your word and the explanation of your word, the making sense of it would be the means that you freely choose to reveal yourself to us this day. And Lord, when we have your word before us, we have two options. We either submit to it or we rebel against it. And so I pray that you would grant us submission to your word into the authority that you rightly have as our creator. 
And so, God, would you grant us wisdom? Would you grant us discernment? Would you help us to understand your word that you might be glorified? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are made in the likeness and image of God. And I don't have enough time to work through this entire text, but there's a couple things that I want to point out. One of the things we first see is in verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I love that simple phrase because unless you stop and kind of think about it, you would miss this. God creates humanity of his own will. It is not as if God is somehow incomplete. And so he was sitting around bored and he's like, oh man, I just feel lonely and isolated and I wish I had somebody to play with. And so God then creates. That's not what happened. God does not create because he is incomplete in, in some way. It, the creation is not the way in which God is, is, you know, more advanced or anything like that. God creates not out of need, but he creates out of fullness. In himself, God is perfectly loving and content, but he created all things in order for that love and that contentment and that joy that he possessed in himself could be shared with that which he creates. So God is not needy. God is the one who needs no one. God created of his own volition and his own will. And when he created, whatever he created then gets to share an experience of who God is. And so that's what we see in verse 26. So make no mistake, God is not in our debt. Another thing that we see is how humanity is a distinct creature. When you go on and read in verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. If you notice, there are a lot of things that God created days one through six. Suns and stars and trees and birds and reptiles and animals, and there's water and there's dry land, there's all of these things, and not one of those things is ever said to be made in his image. The only thing that bears the image of God is humanity. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And like I said, I have so much that could be said about this, but I want to simply point out this reality. In the ancient world, the use of images was used to portray the realm in which a king would rule. And so what happens is you would have a king who ruled over a particular region of the earth, and what he would do is set up these different images, these little statues. And these images, these little statues being spread over a particular area of land were to signify the realm of the king himself. Likewise, when God creates Adam and Eve and creates humanity in his image, and then he says, be, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth in verse 28, what God is doing is as the creator king who rules sovereignly over all things, he's saying, I'm, I've given you my image and I want this image to be multiplied over the face of the earth so that the whole earth is filled with image bearers. And that is to signify the fact that I'm the king. And I rule and reign over all the earth, but I rule and reign through humanity. That's why God rests on day seven. He then delegates the responsibility of taking the natural world and making something of this natural world. He delegates that to humanity. And so humanity operates as like a vice regent, which means as like a deputy king. And so they are to take the natural world and to harness it and to cultivate it and to create civilization out of it because they've been delegated the responsibility to do so. And they are to 
rule over it as a faithful steward, not to exploit the natural world, but to use it for God's glory and for the purposes for which God made it. But it's unique in how God created humanity. God has created humanity, in a big fancy word, as a psychosomatic unity. It's a compound word in Greek. Psycho means the immaterial part of who we are, which is the mental side and and the spiritual side, the soul side. So it's the non-physical. And the other side of it is somatic, which is the, the Greek word soma, which means body, which means physical. So God has created humanity as a physical and non-physical unity. The implication of that is this. We are not our bodies. Human beings are not our souls. We are embodied souls. But the implication of this is that We are, yes, distinct from creation, but the fact that we have bodies, the the fact that we, we actually are physical creatures, means in some way we have similarities between us and the created world, like animals. So there is something unique about humanity, but there's also something similar. For instance, if you want to eat bananas, you probably need to have a digestive system that will actually do that for you, so you can eat bananas or kiwi, or whatever, what have you. And if you think about it, these bananas and kiwis and various other things are a part of the ecosystem in which God has placed us. So it's just common sense to think, wow, if God created humanity and animals and plants and all these things to live within an ecosystem on planet Earth, then it just is common sense to conclude that humanity and animals would be similar and humanity and bananas would be similar in some ways. They would be like each other because you couldn't eat things that weren't like you. That's why we don't eat rocks. Common sense would tell you living things need to kind of be like each other. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we see God creating humanity, and you see this psychosomatic unity. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, there's the physical part, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so there's a material part of us, and there's an immaterial part. Or in other words, there's a physical part and a non-physical part. But what this means is we, as we think about what it means to be human, we must realize the real us is not our soul. And the real us is not our bodies. We are embodied souls. There's a unity there. And this has vast implications for a whole host of things. For instance, Plato and the Gnostics they taught that the physical world was evil and the greatest liberation one could experience was to, be, to, to remove your flesh. And so you blast out your earth suit and you end up being this disembodied spirit that just roams around everywhere. That is not what Christianity teaches. Christianity actually teaches that a disembodied soul is a curse <laughs> And, and just naturally, we would understand that because there's two things you and I don't like as human beings. Number one, ghosts. We're like, mm-mm, nope. Because we don't like things that are alive, spiritually speaking, that have no bodies. Likewise, we don't like dead bodies. Why? Because we know they should be alive. 
So bodies without spirits and spirits without bodies, mm -mm, nope. We intuitively know as human beings, we are meant to be embodied souls. We're supposed to have a physical and non-physical aspect of what it means to be human. Now, our bodies and our souls can be separated, but the reality is salvation itself is incomplete until both body and soul are made whole. And so you can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 about how we would rather be away from the Lord in verse 8. We would rather be away from, the, uh, uh, away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so there's that idea that we can consciously be with God apart from our body. And so, yes, that is a separate thing. But then you read in Romans chapter 8 verse 22 where the Apostle Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. The Christian hope is that we as a whole self, body and soul, will be redeemed. Body and soul redeemed. You do not have a body. You do not have a soul. You are an embodied soul. This has huge implications for how we treat one another. For if we treat people differently and maybe unjustly and oppressively because of their physical features, like we do with racism or what we do with handicap or what we do with various other things, then what we are saying is you are only your body. And if you don't have a full, complete body, you are less of a person. So we need to recapture the biblical understanding of what it means to be human. We are embodied souls. You are not your body. You are not your soul. You are an embodied soul. Now, this has significant philosophical implications as well. And I'm going to use two words which are philosophical in nature, but they come right out of Scripture conceptually. We as human beings are substances. What it means to be a substance is to be a living organism that keeps its identity through time. What it means to be an organism, a living organism, is that over the course of time, you maintain your essential identity. No amount of time and no amount of development during that time alters your essence. That is what you are. A living organism has within itself the ability to order its own development. And as it develops over time, it is not a new thing. It maintains its own essence and identity. Now, we see this most explicitly in Genesis chapter 1 in regards to animals, but it's obviously implied with human beings too. Look at this in verse 24. God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. What that means is a living organism is a substance in the sense that birds always procreate birds. And no amount of time is ever going to change that reality. Birds beget birds. Squirrels beget squirrels. 
No human being will ever give birth to an alligator. It's so common sense, it's ridiculous that I even have to say this. Or that people spend thousands of dollars to go to biology class in college to learn this. But nonetheless, we have to say it. Now, this may not mean much, but if you think about it, when God says to human beings, go, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, he's implying through the act of sex, which is procreation, human beings will procreate more human beings. And regardless of how many generations transpire, human beings will always be producing human beings. Simple. No matter the time, no matter the development, human beings will be human beings. And the application of this is really simple. If you encounter an Iraq or Afghanistan war veteran and they come back and they have both of their legs missing, none of us in our right mind will look upon this double amputee and say, oh, wow, you're only 80% human now. None of us would say that because we know even if you are an amputee, your identity as a human being is still there. You are a human being whether you have one leg, no legs, two legs. You are a human being whether both your eyes work or only one of your eyes works or none of them. You are a human being because you are a living organism that has substance. And you are what you are, not by virtue of your properties. You are what you are by virtue of being human. Which is, dis- which is contrasted with the other thing, in f- which is called being a property thing. A property thing is the sum of its parts. Which means in a property thing, there is no internal nature that orders its own development. Think, for instance, like a car. Nobody gets a glob of metal, puts it out there, and then takes a step back and then waits for it to develop into what it's supposed to be. Nobody comes back a a year later or two years later and go, whoa, a Corvette, amazing. Because property things do not have the internal working in order to order their own development. Only substance things has that ability. So when a sperm and an egg come together and an egg is fertilized, it creates a zygote. And a zygote immediately has all the chromosomal and DNA composition it needs to order itself according to its own development. Which means you can leave it alone and it will become a full-fledged human being. Human beings are substances, not properties. I've had somebody tell me, well, but if you think about it, like... If you are a human being and you lose like a function, like you can't see anymore, you feel less human. Yeah, I I bet you do. But that's because our culture has taught us to feel that way. Not because it's actually true. We should not embrace the fact that those who cannot see because they're blind or those who cannot hear because they're deaf or those who cannot walk for various reasons... We should not embrace the kind of thinking that they are somehow less human because they don't have the faculties functioning at 100%. How dare we look at a blind person and go, Woo, you are less human than me because I see and you don't. Are you kidding me? 
we intuitively know this is wrong, and we also know that this is the basis for all human rights. We ought not to ever think that a person is less human because they have Alzheimer's. You are not less human because you have dementia or because you are in a coma. So what are some implications twofold? There are ethical implications regarding the treatment of others and how we show honor or contempt for God. The implication of the doctrine, the teaching of human dignity, is that the way we treat each other is a reflection upon God himself. And if we treat people poorly, unjustly, and oppressively, it's a reflection on our thinking of God. And in fact, all ethics, all ethics, which is what you ought or ought not to do, must be grounded in something. You can't just say, we shouldn't do this, and if somebody replies, why not, you can't just say, because. What are you, three? No. You have to have a reason. Give a reason why we ought not to treat people this way. And what's beautiful about Christianity, and I know that not everyone here is a Christian, you wouldn't identify as a Christian, but I would say the explanatory power, the ability to explain why we ought to pursue human rights, Christianity has the very best explanation. And any other explanation you offer is weak. So what is the explanation for Christianity? It's this. Every human being bears the image of God and therefore is valuable And because they bear the image of God and are valuable, they ought to be treated with dignity. Or Genesis 9-6, this is the way Moses puts it. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made him in his own image. It is wrong to murder. Why? Because God has made man in his own image. Or you have Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors whom? God. And so the way in which we treat the poor is either contemptible or honorable. And if we treat contemptibly those who are poor... We are actually showing contempt to God. Why? Because God is the poor's maker. And if God is their maker, they are made in his image. And if they have his image, they are valuable. And if you treat what God considers valuable as invaluable, you are showing contempt for God. Likewise, if you are generous to the needy, You are not just showing honor to those in need. You are actually showing honor to God. James 3, 9. With it, which is our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curse. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Why ought not they to be? Why shouldn't we curse people? Because they're made in the likeness of God. 
And how in the world can people who actually know that another human being is made in the image of God, how can they actively and intentionally use their own mouth to curse what God has made beautiful, wonderful, and valuable? How can you do that? And so that is the ethical dimension. And when you read in Matthew, Jesus picks this very thing up. Matthew 25. Jesus is talking about the judgment on the last day. He said there's going to be some who are going to be put to the right. They are the sheep. Those who are going to be put to the left, they are the goats. And what differentiates between a sheep and a goat is how they act towards others. And he writes this in verse 34. The king who is the judge will say to those on his right, that is the sheep, come. You who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Why do they inherit? Because. Jesus says, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. That's hospitality. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Brothers and sisters, there are ethical implications for how we treat one another. If humanity is indeed dignified because they are made in the image of God, then how we treat image bearers matters. It matters. Probably more significantly than we even realize. Second implication is this. Every human being has inherent dignity by virtue of being human. Every human being has inherent dignity, that is value, by virtue of being human, not because of anything they've achieved. We see this in Proverbs 22 too. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. And I love this proverb because it reminds us that how you treat socioeconomic people is ultimately a reflection upon God. Just because somebody is wealthy does not mean they are inherently more valuable. Because somebody is poor does not mean that they are inherently less valuable. God is maker of them all. So there is no acquisition of certain properties that elevates the dignity of humanity. Instead, humanity, by virtue of being made by God in His image, has equal dignity and value in the eyes of the Lord. And therefore, we should emulate Him in how we view others. Human beings are substance things, not property things. This has deep implications for abortion. I'm going to talk about abortion for a moment. What's going to happen is some of you will tune me out and you will say to yourself, ah, he's going into politics. Let me tell you, abortion is a morality issue, not a political issue. But this moral issue called abortion has been politicized. There's a huge difference. Paul Simmons, who was a Christian ethicist and abortion advocate, he wrote this. He says, no one can deny the continuum from fertilization to maturity to adulthood. 
No one can deny that scientifically. No one can deny that a fertilized egg will result in adulthood. He says, but that does not mean, however, that every step on the continuum has the same value or constitutes the same entity. He goes on to say that human being is different from a human person by virtue of self-awareness. He says a person, in contrast to a being, has capacities of reflective choice, relational responses, social experience, moral perception, and self-awareness. In other words, a human person has a right to life so long as they have these properties. If these properties are non-existent, then the human is merely a being and not a human person, and therefore has no right to life. Therefore, human embryos can be killed since they are merely human beings, not human persons. If you take that rationale to its logical conclusion, you would also conclude five-day-old infants also have no right to life, and they can be killed. How is that so? Well, because five-day-old infants do not have self-awareness. They do not have moral perception, social experience, relational responses, or reflective choice. And as such, as Peter Singer and others advocate, infanticide should be morally acceptable. Because they're not persons, they're just beings. Now, what Peter Singer does is he goes on to say, a human person is different from a human being and a fetus and a newborn because they are not yet persons are disqualified from life, and no one can draw an arbitrary line at the point of birth. Just because birth has occurred does not mean that that being has turned into a person. As I talk about abortion, especially with young adults, when I used to do young adult ministry, inevitably somebody would come back to me and they say, Phil, you're a man, you don't understand. And I would say, yeah, I'm not a woman. Like, thanks for noticing. I get it. And one time, a couple times actually, I've been told this, if you don't like abortion, you shouldn't get one. And I would say, well, that's like saying, if you don't like slavery, don't have a slave. If you don't like slavery, just don't have a slave. And inevitably they will turn and they'll go, that's not even the same. Why isn't it the same? Well, because slaves are people. They're human people. And fetuses aren't? No. Okay, you have to defend that because science says they are. Philosophy says they are. Theology says they are. So you need to defend that claim because it all boils down to one question. What is the unborn? You have to answer that. I don't care what political party you are, you have to answer that. What is the unborn? When Beyonce sent out on Instagram that she was pregnant with twins, there was not a single person that said, hey, congratulations to your fetus. You bear fetuses. They said something to the, diff to the contrary. These children, they said, will grow up and you will be blessed. We know what we're doing. We know what we're doing.
Abraham Lincoln made this very same point. You see, if human beings have value because of some acquired property, like skin color, consciousness, or some kind of virtue of achievement, then that means their value is an acquired property. And also that means human rights is a varying thing as well. Which means some people have more rights than others by virtue of them having more properties than others. So here's what Abraham Lincoln wrote. He said this, you say A is white and B is black. Oh, it's color then that makes a person valuable. The lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care. For by this rule, you are a slave to the first man you meet with fairer skin than your own. Ah, well, you don't mean color exactly. You mean the whites are intellectually the superior of the blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again. For by this rule, you are to be enslaved to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. Oh, yeah. Get him. Praise God for men like Martin Luther King Jr. and Abraham Lincoln who write publicly what we already know intuitively. We as human beings are distinct from the animal world. We are made in the image of God. We have inherent value and dignity and therefore there is a certain level of human rights that needs to be applied to everyone regardless of, to any, regardless of any acquired property we may have. Whether you are of a different skin color, hair length, whether you are of a different intellect, whether your body is full functioning or not, you have the right to life because you are a human being. That, brothers and sisters, is the Christian teaching of human dignity. Now, in your outline, you'll probably see that there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm supposed to say. I can't say it. We don't have enough time. So let me just get to the gist of it. Two other implications that I think are worthwhile if you were to read the rest of Genesis 1, 27, 28 is this. Human beings beget human beings. You guys know what the word beget means. It's to mean like to procreate. Like I've already said, squirrels beget squirrels. Ravens beget ravens. Human beings beget human beings. And because human beings beget human beings, it means that not only the process of begetting, which is sex and procreation, but also the product of that begetting is a human being who has dignity and value. Another implication of being a human being is this, regardless of achievement or development, by virtue of being a human Human beings have inherent rights that are to be protected. Which means you and I, as Christians, if you're a Christian here, I am not preaching about social justice as a political movement. I'm preaching a theological truth that demands obedience. We are made in the image of God. Every human being has inherent dignity and value and worth. How we treat other people reflects upon God himself. And because God himself 
has given humanity his own image, he rules and reigns over humanity. And as the ruler and the one who is king over humanity, he has the prerogative to say what is or is not a human and what should or should not a human do. And so we must submit to that. And therefore, when we find injustice being levied against any human being, we ought to, as Christians, fight against that. And if we find oppression taking place on any human being, we should fight against that. Because human beings are made in the image of God. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, we live in a world where we see great injustices and we see great oppression. And we wonder to ourselves, can human beings actually be made in the image of God? And we see the way we treat socioeconomically disadvantaged people, or we see how people who um, are of special needs or, or people who are of different races, and we see genocides, and we see all this stuff, and we conclude, man, this is crazy. It shouldn't be like this. And then I would say, why not? Why not? And the answer is because we're made in the image of God. And we as Christians ought to be at the front of the line fighting against injustice wherever it may appear. That is why I've preached before on and on. People have left the church because of this. Racism is anti-gospel. Abortion is anti-gospel. Socioeconomic predatory lending is anti-gospel. And we have to fight against these things. Have to. Now, if I just left it at this, many of us are sitting here would go, man, I'm toast. Let's hurry up and watch the Niner game because I need to start feeling good. <laughs> if I left it like this, brothers and sisters, what would end up happening is we would have a cloud of despair that would hover over us. Because many of us have actually used the very tongues in our heads to curse people who bear the image of God. And you know you have. Some of us are latent racists where we see people with a darker skin color, perhaps, and we walk on the other side of there because, you know, you can't trust them. Or we see people of a lighter skin color and say, these privileged people, I can't stand them. And some of us see those who are socioeconomically disadvantaged to one degree or another, and we go, oh, what a suck on our economy. We have reason to repent. And among us are some women who in their history have decided to have an abortion. And among us in our church, some of these very women are being plagued with guilt and shame. And some of the men who paid for it are sitting right next to them. And so if I don't at this moment offer hope, we will leave here feeling totally dejected. And so brothers and sisters, what I have time to do is to just offer hope. I can offer hope to the racist that if you will repent and believe in the gospel, God will transform you and renew you from the inside out and you will begin to see people by the indwelling Holy Spirit as you ought to see them as image bearers of God, innate, dignified, valuable people. And those who have had abortions and those who have paid for them, you are not the sum total of your mistakes. You are not a property thing. You are a substance. And so I would please throw yourselves upon the grace and mercy of God. You see, when we turn to Romans 1, we see the Apostle Paul writing about all kinds of sins. And he talks about how the wrath of God is upon those 
who, who practice ungodliness. He says this in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. And then Paul goes on to explain what he means by that. But those who practice unrighteousness and, and they are defaming God, you will see many manifestations of this. Homosexuality, malice, gossiping, envy, deceit, strife, murder. You're going to see foolishness, faithfulness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. We live in a culture that celebrates the removal of human rights in the name of human rights. It's mind-blowing that we would do such a thing and watch people give standing ovation to those who do. The wrath of God is coming. Which means, brothers and sisters, before we start pointing the finger of all the celebrities and all these people out there who are so wicked, we need to start remembering the wrath of God is coming for us. Us who have cursed another human being with our tongue. Us who have latent racism as a part of our being. And to that there is great hope. For Paul said in chapter 2, verse 3 of Ephesians, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. There's that physical, non-physical. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. And look at this phrase, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Brothers and sisters, God loves us more than we ever thought or imagined. And he bestows grace and mercy upon the most vile of sinners. And the wrath of God is upon all of those who practice injustice and racism and who have advocated for abortion and performed abortion. But... None of that means you are beyond the reach of God's grace. None of that means that the mercy of God and the love of God is something you cannot experience. The grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God is being offered in the person of Jesus. If we will repent of our sin and cling to Christ, he will wash over us with his love and his mercy. He will heal and resolve all of the guilt and all of the shame. He will forgive the sins that we have committed and he will create us anew in the likeness of his own son, Jesus. And in that new likeness, brothers and sisters, what ends up happening is we are transformed and we are liberated and we are set free from our own guilt and our own shame and we can now lovingly serve others so that they too can come to know the liberating freedom of the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have the greatest story ever told. We have the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ for both the oppressed and the oppressor. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And before we start to make ourselves feel good about ourselves because we're not like them, make sure you count yourself among those who are objects of God's wrath first. We all have sinned in this way. We have all defamed the dignity of humanity. But all of us, all of us, can be redeemed by the blood of Christ.
For Jesus came for every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And there is no sin that is greater than God's mercy. Our sin is much, but his mercy is more. So, Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to rescue us. And I pray that all of us who are here who know the guilt and we know our own shame, that we have mistreated other human beings, that we have defamed them, that we have been undignifying towards them, and that you see all of this and you rightly judge us. God, you've also spoken a better word to us and you've offered us your grace and you've offered us your forgiveness and you've offered us hope that we can be forgiven of this and that we can stand completely forgiven in your presence because of Jesus, because he lived, because he died, because he rose again. He is able and willing to forgive us of all our sin. And that is good news to those who are oppressed. That even though they suffer under the heavy hand of injustice, you promise that one day you're going to make all things new again and you're going to make all things right. And so God, all of us, whether we are the oppressor or the oppressed, whether we, no matter our circumstance, Lord, we have hope in Jesus. We have hope in Jesus. And it's good and right for us to praise him because of that. So God, compel us to be men and women of good works who will proclaim this message to all the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.